Hymn number 275, we've been asked to mark, and we will sing that at the appropriate time a little bit later in the service. If I might add, too, some of those announcements that were made, certainly as an announcement that has been rather commonplace, uh, the next rendition of the puzzles are now available in the foyer, so if you didn't pick that up as you came in this morning, please feel free to do that there in the literature rack on the left as you exit the auditorium. Again, as we continue to study in those puzzles, their purpose is to aid us as we study the book of John along with our, our youngsters in their preparation for the Bible Bowl. And of course, the lesson tonight will also touch also that subject being drawn from John chapters 11 and the opening part of chapter 12. So we'll look forward to studying together again at a 5.30 hour this afternoon. Also, in addition to those, I might make mention that the uh, third Sunday Jackson County singing is today, and it's at the Antioch Congregation, the Antioch Church of Christ, uh, just over the hill there in Jackson County. So if you have opportunity to come, I'm sure the brethren there would be more than delighted to have you come and be a part of it. And amongst those visiting with us today is a good friend of my family, Ricky, Ricky Williams, is with us all the way from Columbia, Kentucky. Uh, he's a math teacher there at the college, known, known Ricky for a long time since I first came to that city. I'm just appreciative of him coming to be with us from that uh, fair distance to be with us here this morning. During the lesson time, I'd ask you to consider a lesson entitled, taken there from the 127th Psalm, Namely, God's reward with a careful appreciation related to that of children. As we give some thought this morning to matters concerning that verse, let's begin by way of introduction, if we might, with some thoughts somewhat like this. Isn't it lovely to consider the rather remarkable and refreshing way that the Scriptures present matters concerning the family? I believe we're all well, under, well aware of the fact that the family, certainly in recent decades, has begun to not be as highly respected as it once was. There are many aspects of it that in fact almost seem to be rather dark and concealing. But yet the Bible lifts the family to a rather notable and high plane, doesn't it? And it speaks about the love and the trustworthiness and the fidelity that exists between a husband and his wife and between children and their parents and parents, of course, toward the children. And as all of that is discussed and mentioned, the Bible has a fair amount to say, doesn't it, about children? Not only in describing them, not only in asserting the tasks and the subservience of them to their parents, but those pieces of information, I would submit, not only are beneficial for children, they're also beneficial for you and I as adults, and they're beneficial, in fact, for the adult population in general. In fact, much of what God has to say is so very telling as it reveals to us about the nature of children and their reaction and relationship to their parents. I would invite us today to look at that passage in Psalm 127 and to revisit and to learn some lessons that God shared in the long ago that might help us as we appreciate children about us, whether they be ours or not, but the example that we should be setting for them and the type of instruction that God wishes us to consider concerning them. The first part of the lesson, I have chosen to entitle then the presence of children. Isn't it amazing as one revisits the opening two chapters in the book of God, the Bible, the book of Genesis, that there we find in the presentation of Adam and Eve, on that sixth day of God's creative activity, he fashioned Adam first, and then a bit later that day, Eve, but he fashioned them as adults. He did not fashion them as children. 
And that leads us to appreciate the following observations. I've listed that under the context of description. In Genesis 1.26, God expressly said to them that they were to have dominion over the fishes of the sea and the fowls of the air and the beasts that walk upon earth. God would not have handed that dominion over, you see, to a mere child. They were fashioned as adults, and their understanding allowed them to appreciate God's commandment. When He said that they were not to partake of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge in the midst of the garden, they knew what that meant. They weren't minor in terms of understanding, and they weren't minor in terms of comprehensibility. They had, you see, the characteristics of adulthood, being able to understand commands and to, in fact, obey them. Those facts lead us to appreciate very clearly the commandment then of Genesis 1.28. He, in fact, stated to them, though they were not fashioned as children, He gave them the instruction that they were to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. That helps us see then that God's plan for the population of the planet, God's plan, you see, for the matter of increasing the population of humanity had to do with procreation on the part of Adam and Eve at the outset, didn't it? But not only that, might we notice that that matter of procreation was something rather significant, especially once sin entered the world. Notice that there are some who may attempt to couch that nature of procreation as a sinful thing, but God made that statement before sin ever entered the world. In fact, from the nature of the entrance of sin in Genesis 3, when Eve first partook of the forbidden fruit and then Adam shortly thereafter, we notice that in fact it was in chapter 4 that it says Eve conceived. The conception had taken place and two boys Twins, it would seem, were brought into the world. Cain and Abel were their names. The realization then that they had followed at that point the statement that God had made, the matter concerning the procreation and the bringing forth of children, leads us to notice that even in that early stage in time, God's plan, in fact, would ultimately bring the Christ child into the world. How was it? that Genesis 3.15 made reference to the nature of the Christ. Did not there God say that I'll put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed? We notice that the seed of the woman was mentioned. And later Paul identified that as being the Christ. There was to be a physical descendancy from Eve. There was to be a continuance of the physical line of progression from Eve. Clearly, children were very important in God's plan. Clearly, children were a very play, occupied a very important place in the matter of human families. As you notice then in that text of Genesis 4.1, the conception that Adam and Eve enjoyed, that leads us to make one rather dramatic point because there have been some, of course, in recent decades that have wished to wage war against the very idea but when does human life begin? When is it that one can say that that life, in fact, has its genesis, has its origination? There are those who would wish to legislate such that one could appreciate that human life doesn't begin until the babe, in fact, exits the womb of the mother. But the Scriptures will not uphold that kind of viewpoint. 
In fact, doesn't the Scripture teach on a number of occasions that from the time that the conception occurs, a human life has begun. It is separate from dad and from mom. It has characteristics that are determined and set, albeit genetically, at that time. The color of its hair, the color of its eyes, the stature of its height, all of that genetically known, and it is distinct from dad and from mom. This life that begins to form and to mature in the womb of the mother is in fact a beautiful thing to consider and to behold, isn't it? In fairness, I've listed some passages that you might want to take note of and read at your leisure at some point this week as it speaks about how precious indeed is that life in the womb of the mother to God himself. In Isaiah 49 verse 1, that bold and great prophet of ancient day was told by God, God said to him, I formed thee even yet in thy mother's womb, and I knew thy name. In Jeremiah 1 verse 5, God speaking of and to Jeremiah said, Before thou camest forth, I formed thee. And notice he also said, I sanctified thee and called thee to be a prophet unto the people. That leads us to perhaps beg the question as to what are we doing to our children, our land, when we abort them and slaughter them and kill them? Those could have been great scientists, mathematicians. They could have been great preachers of the gospel. They could have been wives of elders and preachers. They could have been those who would have been great nurses and those that would have carried forth the cause of humanity and would have done so by the gracious goodness of the God of heaven. To say all of that is to say that children, as they enter this world, do so in purity. And they, in fact, are without sin. Especially since about the 15th century, there have been a number of those who have taught just the opposite of that statement. There have been those who have taught that children are born sinners. In fact, wasn't it Calvin who said that there are babies in hell not a span long? That kind of statement is absolutely nonsensical. The scriptures, in fact, do not state that we inherit the sin of Adam. They do not state that we inherit the guilt of our parents or of any other of our forebears. Did not, in fact, Ezekiel, two passages from that book to which we might refer. In Ezekiel 18.20, that great prophet, that fiery prophet by the river Kibar, expressly made this statement. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The Son shall not bear the iniquity of the Father, neither shall the Father bear the iniquity of the Son, but the righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. The opening part of that text had said the soul that sinneth is the one that will die. Sin is not inherited. Sin does not come upon one simply by virtue of being born in a certain way or at a certain time. Sin is a choice to transgress the will of God, 1 John 3, verse 4. In fact, that other passage in Ezekiel that seems so very telling is Ezekiel 28, 15, when to the prophet, in fact to the king of Tyre, the prophet said, Thou wast formed without iniquity. Thou wast formed in thy purity. And only when thou chose to sin was iniquity found in thee. Sin, you see, is a volitional choice that a person makes to violate, to transgress the will and the chosen power of God. To state then that children are born in, without sin or that they are born in a state of purity, 
leads us to perhaps note some interesting and further remarks about children. The value of children, oddly enough, often suffers beneath the burden of human misperception. In fact, isn't it easy to see that quite often children are neglected, they're abused, they're mistreated. Quite often children find themselves in unwelcome positions. Quite frankly, some wish to enjoy the pleasures of sexuality, but they do not want the consequence of the children that comes along with it. That's the very reason, isn't it, why God stated there was an environment in which that kind of sexual favor was to be enjoyed. And only in that environment are children to have that which nurtures and guides them properly. It is that godly family, isn't it, described in the Holy Scriptures. And thus, sometimes children find themselves in positions where they maybe are unwelcomed and are very sorely mistreated. I suspect that testifies to all of us in great distinction to what the Bible says, doesn't it? For notice how the preciousness of children is set forth in the Scriptures. I've listed just a few passages, and the central one will be the one that was our lesson text this morning. In Psalm 113, verse number 9, the closing verse to that chapter, the psalmist there made the statement that it is God who opens the womb of the barren woman and allows her to enjoy the motherhood of children. That passage in Psalm 127, the one read earlier, might we again revisit and read verses 3, 4, and 5 of the 127th Psalm. The aspect of verse 3 is the one that was read earlier, but the other two verses will also be a part of our description this morning. It reads as follows. Lo, children are in heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is His reward. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with the enemies in the gate. To begin, might we notice just two of the words. Children are in heritage of the Lord. That identifies, or at least sets before us the thought, doesn't it, that it is God that blesses with children, blesses you and I with children. They are in heritage of the Lord. And that word heritage means inheritance. It means heritage. Isn't it amazing then to consider that an inheritance provided to those who choose to have children from the virtue of God Himself is the nature of that precious boy or girl born into that family. An aspect of that which is bequeathed to us from God as an inheritance. But notice the latter part of that verse uses the word reward expressly. The fruit of the womb is his reward. That word reward means wages or hire or yea, reward. And you and I can thus appreciate that there is a grand privilege to having children, to be able to influence children, to be able to exert a degree of character building in regard to them. I might invite us to consider, if we might, that there's a statement in verse number 5 that begins with the word happy. And that word means blessed, but it says, Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. Now certainly in wisdom we might appreciate, maybe in terms of providing, it'd be best not to have 30 or 40 children. But there is a blessing stated to those who enjoy the character of parenthood. Be they mothers, be they fathers, happy is the man 
that hath his quiver full of them. Certainly a small quiver wouldn't take many hours to fill, would it? Can we not appreciate the great blessing that many have enjoyed as parents? And I might submit that all of us, be we parents, grandparents, or even others who exert influence on children, can learn a great deal from the closing two verses of the 127th Psalm. It is in that way I would invite you to consider some of the features of those as we move to, in fact, what will be the latter section of the lesson this morning. For isn't it amazing to see the preciousness of children seen first of all in the number of examples testified in the Bible. Some of the greatest worthies of Old and New Testament alike, in fact, had episodes in their life relating to children, didn't they? Abraham was greatly desirous of seeing the promise of God fulfilled relative to his seed in Genesis 17 as well as Genesis 21. And isn't it amazing that we consider his son Isaac, who being the son of promise, also besought the Lord on behalf of Rebekah, his barren wife. And God opened her womb and blessed them with two boys. Their names were, of course, Esau and Jacob. And then, of course, Jacob often prayed relative to his own wife and their children. Specifically, Rachel, when she was barren, Jacob, in fact, besought the Lord on, he, on her behalf that she might also bring forth children. Beside them, could it not be mentioned concerning even one New Testament example? What might be said concerning Zechariah? He and his wife Elizabeth were greatly advanced in years, and yet Zechariah prayed in Luke 1.13 relative to the childlessness and God said that she, his wife, would bear a son. That son came to be John the Baptist, the great forerunner of the Christ, and the one who prepared the way for the coming Messiah. What a great work was, in fact, John. But that isn't all. One could mention Samson and his father Manoah, how that they too were greatly excited at the news that a baby boy was going to come their way. And can we not also think about Jesus, our Lord? God chose to bring him into the world by virtue of birth. When Mary, his mother, gave birth there in Bethlehem of Judea, recorded both in Matthew chapters 1 and 2 and Luke chapters 1 and 2, we find the great recognition of here the light had come into the world, and God chose to bring that light by virtue of the birth of Jesus, the Son of God, there in Bethlehem of Judea. All of that points us, doesn't it, to consider at least briefly, why are children so precious? Why is it something that the Bible doesn't endorse to treat them in the way sometimes we often see in our land and around the world? Is it the preciousness by virtue of the fact stated in Genesis chapter 1? Let us make man in our image after our likeness. That precious child, you see, is made in the image and in the likeness of God just like you and I. And because of that nature, that life, of course, is an immortal spirit. That's part of what it means to say that one bears the image of God. Just as God is eternal, so too, once that child is conceived in the womb of the mother, it shall always be. It shall never cease to exist. Oh, for a while, once it exits the mother's womb, it may live here in the flesh on earth, but... Even when the time of its death comes, we well know it shall reside elsewhere. What is it that David stated concerning that little baby that died in his life, his own son? Do we not recall in 2 Samuel 23, 
after the death of that little baby, David said, I shall go to him. He shall not return to me. Thus, David well knew that babe was still alive. He existed in that Hadean realm beyond the physical scenes of this life. And so too are children, once conceived in the womb of the mother, never shall cease to be. That indicates the great preciousness and what a powerful recognition is yours and mine as parents, as grandparents, as others who influence them so that they can one day enjoy the greatness of heaven. We would certainly be remiss not to say that rearing children can be challenging. It can be trying. There are times that they wish to know exactly what the boundaries are and they may well push those boundaries. And you and I may have to respond with appropriate discipline. But we understand that that is done in love. It is done in recognition of the preciousness that they are not in spite of it. That perhaps brings us to just a few more ideas as we draw our lesson to its final stages. Those ideas take us back to Psalm 127. As we appreciate the preciousness of children, the fact of the matter, of course, begins this way. That little baby that enters this world is helpless, isn't it? It can't provide for its own physical needs. It can't provide the things that it needs in terms of food and shelter and clothing. It enters a world in need of the provision of another. That's where the parents enter, isn't it? They have that initial responsibility to provide for, to care for, to ensure that those needs are met. And any number of passages help us see the examples of godly individuals who did that. It was mothers, it was fathers alike. As all of that is appreciated, might we notice that there are other needs that that child has. In addition to the food to fill its stomach and to the clothes that are on its back and, of course, unto the character of the roof on its head, young people, thank your parents for those things. When they provide so well and in such greatness for so many of us, they ought to be appreciated for that. But might we also notice that children have emotional needs. That child needs to come to understand love. It needs to come to appreciate that it is loved and it is valued and that it has a natural and respectful place within that family. We as fathers especially, it seems, need to ensure that that takes place. Colossians 3.21 reminds us, Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. We wish not then to discourage our children in a way so that they are distant from us, or distant from authority, or distant from those who treasure and love them. They need to recognize they're a part of a family. And not only a part of it, they are an important part of it. As they appreciate that role, and as they mature and greatly come to the point of even later in life appreciating what they once enjoyed in that way, hopefully they can establish their families also with that understanding. But in addition to those two things, might we state that there is a third need and it's the most significant. In addition to those things physical and in addition to those matters emotional, children have a spiritual need. After all, we said they enter this world helpless. They do not know what is the most important. They do not know what absolutely is the most significant. Thus, the parents and others who influence them, it is their charge and their commission and their challenge to instill within them what is the most important. 
so that they can live here as proper and good citizens, not only of this world, but more importantly, as citizens of those with citizenship in God's kingdom. In Philippians 3, Paul closes that chapter by stating we are citizens, not merely of this world, but of the great kingdom of God. Our children from an early age need to be recognized and taught that that greatness is what should be appreciated. Sometimes we sing a song that this world is not our home. They need to come to know that early on so that the materialistic things of life don't distract them from what is ultimately and finally the most important thing. That is to ensure one leaves this earth ready to meet our maker in judgment. That's where so many in the world fail, isn't it? They provide everything physically for their children. They maybe even do a good job emotionally with them, but they are not of a position to instruct them spiritually. And they ignore and neglect that aspect and charge God has given them. And that's a sadness. It, in fact, is a terrible tragedy. But in wisdom, might we at least make note of some things taught in the Word of God that remind all of us, as parents and as older adults, of the greatness of teaching our children. Proverbs 22, verse 6 reads, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Train up a child in the way he should go. Notice the word train indicates a sustained injunction, a sustained time of instruction. It's not just one time. To train something means one with repetition must work on it, exert effort toward it, and labor with regard to the bringing about of the desired end. Train up a child in the way he should go. That first of all implies that you and I must know the way he should go. We need to be thoroughly acquainted with the sacred text and very aware of its precepts and doctrines so that we can order ourselves and to teach them properly. But notice also that that issue of train up a child is embedded in the very text we read earlier. Sometimes we're very quick to remember Psalm 127 verse 3 and we're quick to remember Psalm 127 verse 5. But is it so easy to recall verse 4? Verse 3 had said, Children are in heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. Verse 5 had said, Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. What does verse 4 say? Might I direct your attention back to Ea? And let us think ever so briefly about the meaning of verse 4. For verse 4 had said, as arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Children are there likened unto the arrows of a mighty man. I would submit to you that the context suggests that the psalmist has these ideas in mind. Just as a proficient marksman can take an arrow and aim and fire it with the mission of it hitting a desired target, the skill and the character of that marksman is able to guide and direct that arrow exactly where he wants it to go. Children are the same way. You and I as parents, as older ones, as those who are their guardians and those who influence them, when they are so young, again, they don't know the proper and right way yet. But you and I, by our influence and our direction, our instruction, our discipline, should be able to guide and mark them just as we would proficiently do in our so that they will make the desired destination. Isn't heaven the desired destination? 
Would not you and I be in a sad predicament indeed if we arrive at the pearly gates only to enter therein and learn that our children are not there? Would that not be just a terribly sad thought if one can imagine the realization of it? We should then have a desire that they, and we alike of course, will one day enjoy the grandeur of heaven, having been allowed to enter in by virtue of our faithfulness and theirs, and theirs. Hence, how significant is it that we teach those children? Make sure we have them at Bible studies. Make sure that we bring them to worship. Don't just take and drop them off. We need to bring them and to participate with them. And when we're at home, do we talk like we should around them? Or do we use language that we later will be so sorely regretful that we hear them using? Do they see us go noble places that would be good to go? You see, our children really are very supple when they're young. They learn from us. They watch. They observe. They know what Dad does, and they know what Mom does. And they know whether what we say is different from what, in fact, we actually do. How important it is, then, to live purely before them so that they will grow up to appreciate that's the way they need to be and that we need to expect that of them. Some of the other verses I have listed for your consideration... In Ephesians 6, verse number 4, we know there it says, And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. There's the way we need to train them, isn't it? It's important to encourage them in the secular things of life. But the most important, isn't it? The nurture and admonition of the Lord. There are several other passages that I've listed by way of example. One could mention Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapters 1 and 3, we hear about his mother, Eunice, his grandmother, Lois. They each had an unfeigned faith. And Paul said, I'm persuaded it's in you too, Timothy. And we read in chapter 3 that from a babe, Timothy, you've known the Holy Scriptures. Are we instilling the Scriptures in our children from the earliest age? Because if we do, that's what they'll come to appreciate as important, and they'll strive to live in harmony with it. Perhaps all of this can be summarized in a poem that I ran across several years ago. Unfortunately, I don't know the author of it, but the title of the poem is simply The Sculptor. And I'd invite your attention to some of the thoughts expressed in that poem. It goes like this. I took a piece of plastic clay and idly fashioned it one day. And as my fingers pressed it still, it yielded and moved to my will. I came again when days were past. That piece of clay was hard at last. The form I gave it, it still bore, and I could change that form no more. I took a piece of living clay and formed it gently day by day and fashioned it with power and art, a young child's soft and yielding heart. I came again when years were gone. It was a man I looked upon. He still that early impressed bore, and I could change him nevermore. Just as supple pottery in the hands of a, of a potter. Once that clay is hardened, you can't change it anymore. And in many ways, it's quite like that with our children, isn't it? While they're young and ever so teachable, we can ply them, encourage them, shape and mold them in accordance to what God would find pleasing. But if we wait until they're grown, just like that pottery that's already said, it may well be that then we can't change them anymore. They're set for life. 
they've chosen the pathway they're going to follow and it might well not be the one that's pleasing to the parents and it might well not be the one pleasing to God. As we draw our lesson this morning to its conclusion, might we perhaps summarize our lesson with just a few very brief thoughts that highlight some of the things that we've seen. Children are positioned and portrayed in the scriptures for us as God's reward. As the fruit of the womb, in fact, they're in Psalm 127, verse 3. As we think about the challenge and charge that's ours as older ones, may we strive to guide them just as a proficient marksman does an arrow so that they will learn what they should, appreciate what's right, and strive to live pleasing unto God. Today, the question comes to young and old alike. Young person, have you reached the age of knowing wrong from right? Have you reached that point of knowing that the Son of God died for you? If you know that much and you know that you're in sin, you need to respond today if you haven't done so and let the blood of Christ wash your sins away. If you and I as older need to contemplate too about this, are we setting the example before them that we should? After all, God is taking note of what example we set. And you and I might need to change things if our example to them is not as it ought to be. If we could pray on anyone's behalf today for strength or pray, in fact, for the forgiveness of sins that have been in your life, we'd be honored to do that. We would only ask that you inform us if you would, and to do that while together we stand now and while we sing.